a failure to take a step back, you know, but it's just, but I think it's important not necessarily to view it that way. Um, you know, we all need to regroup and reconstruct ourselves and then, and then, you know, if you are able to work within your comfort zone for a period of time, you can then get yourself ready to take on the next challenge. Welcome to the Alcohol Addiction Podcast. My name is Lee Davey. I'm not an alcoholic. I refuse to be anonymous. I am someone that doesn't drink alcohol. I spend every waking moment of my life helping other people do the same, like right now. How is everybody? I hope you are doing okay. Uh, the situation in the world at the moment is uh, very complicated, uh, very difficult, very challenging. I, I don't think, I mean, certainly in my lifetime, there hasn't been a challenge like this since 2008 with the economic crisis. Um, and this is, this puts that, you know, this is like Godzilla uh, and that was a little mouse. So I know a lot of you at the moment have um, lost the ability to earn income and don't have any money right now. And that as a result of that, you will be feeling desperate and looking to alcohol as a way to alleviate that pain and suffering, okay? And I'm not here right now on this podcast intro to jump on my soapbox and tell you that that's the wrong thing to do. Um, what I want to do is offer you some support, okay? So as everybody knows, I hope <laughs> anyway, when you listen to this podcast, that 1,000 Days Sober is an experience that runs for 2.7 years, right? You know, we that is it. 1,000 days is 2.7 years. And we create assignments and workshops and work with you, with our coaching team, uh, for that period of time or as long as it takes, even longer than that, in order for you to become someone that doesn't drink alcohol and to live a life of personal continuous improvement, what I call a striver, Okay. And we charge people at the moment £40 a month for all of that. So for £40 a month, you get uh, community support, you join Strive, uh, you get assignments when the 1,000 Days Sober Experience begins, and we run it four times a year. The next one is April 26th, so it's a good time to join. And we also give you online coaching, online workshops, online meetings. We meet in person when there's no coronavirus, if the liquidity is there. In other words, if there's enough people in the area to meet. And we have a fantastic, fantastic coaching team. And you get to work with them and learn from them uh, on a one-to-one -one basis and in group settings, right? So we have a lot going for £40 a month. And I'm pretty sure it's the best value out there in the industry right now. And we are the only ones out there that are committed to holding your hand and guiding you through the long-term journey. Yeah, we're called 1,000 Days Sober, but we're here for life. It's not about quitting alcohol for us. It's about building those rockets and going to Mars. It's about understanding and learning what your meaning and purpose is and then creating some really good, solid stretch goals in your life and working with a group of really enthusiastic, uh, well-trained, experienced people to help you do that. That's what we're all about, okay? So if you go to uh, com right now, you'll see a little area on the webpage where you can sign up for our email list. And as you do, you'll get an email off me and that will have the link 
to join up for Strive, okay? And if you do that today, you will get a promo code for 50% off your first month. Uh, if you are already a member of our email list, then send me an email at truthaboutalcohol.gmail.com and I will send you the link and you will be able to sign up, all right? If you want to talk to me about what it all means or you are suffering through financial difficulties as a result of COVID-19 and you don't have the money to sign up, then email me at truthaboutalcohol.gmail.com or WhatsApp me at plus four four seven seven nine five four four one three eight three. That's plus four four seven seven nine five four four one three eight three. Send me a message. We'll have a little chat. And uh, I don't want money to be the reason why you can't get help and support right now. Okay, I don't want that to be the case. So we'll figure something out. And like I say to everybody who touches around the periphery of one thousand days sober. Um, 40 pounds a month is not a cost. Okay. It seems like a cost, but it's not. Cause if you think about me, for example, when I was drinking, if I went out on a Saturday or a or all day Sunday, I'm going to spend, it depends what I was doing, but I'm going to spend between 60 and a hundred pounds a day easy on a Saturday or a Sunday. So I'm spending, I reckon I'm spending, yeah, over a hundred pound a weekend or, 100 to 200 per week on alcohol, okay? So that's like it's like nearly 800 pounds. Say somewhere between, let's say somewhere between 500 to 800 pounds a month on alcohol, just to kind of, you know, spread it out a little bit. And we are charging people 40 pounds a month. So we're saving people. If you're like me, like if I was a joint strive, for example, I would be saving 700, 760 pounds a month. So, you know, if somebody comes to us and they haven't got the money and then we can help them save that money, then they do have that money. Do you know what I mean? So it's almost like, okay, you don't have to pay us. We'll, we'll figure it out. And then you can you can start paying when we save you the money. And if it's every month you don't drink, you put the pennies in the jar, right? And that's, that's the way we could do it. So we don't want money to be an issue for you right now, particularly with COVID-19. So if you want to join and... Now will be the time more than any when you really, really need support. Think about it, okay? We need to keep our immune system as healthy as possible, all right? A couple of ways that you'll do the reverse of that and your immune system will deteriorate. One is by drinking things like alcohol or smoking cigarettes or anything else that you're taking, which is like eating a load of shit, for example, uh, sugar, you know? Like all those different things that are going to weaken your immune system. Not exercising is going to weaken your immune system. But the other thing is um, stress and anxiety. Like stress and anxiety, catastrophe, like all these different things like we worry right now and start to develop like a learned helplessness over, you know, this COVID-19 issue. Like you really need help with that right now. You really need like a secure and safe and trusting environment where you can talk to people about what's on your mind and we can help you to better handle it, to reduce that stress, that anxiety, and to strengthen your immune system. So it's a really, really great time for you to join Strive right now. So email me at the truth about alcohol, truth about alcohol at gmail.com. Uh, we, we're calling it Connection Before Correction. So you join now. You start to connect with people. You find your way around uh, our platforms. You understand how it works. And then on April 26th, when the assignments begin, you're ready to rock and roll. 
All right, don't wait until April 26. Join now. You need us right now. Okay, make that leap. And if you don't like it, I'll give you your money back. Right, it's not important, but please reach out and do it. It's really good to get into an online community right now. Okay, uh, the other thing I want to say is if you do like this podcast, please rate and review it on your local podcast operator. That would really uh, be a big help to me. And if you are on social media, if you're on Instagram, then uh, head over to uh, 1000 Days Sober uh, at Instagram. And uh, we're uh, we're putting about three posts a day out on there now. Good quality uh, content. So you can uh, you can join there. And also 1000 Days Sober YouTube. If you want to watch these videos. Um, so right now, um, our, our interview is going to be on YouTube as well. Then go to 1000 Days Sober and you will find our YouTube channel. Okay, so... Today's guest is Sosia Jiang. I first met Sosia in London last summer when I was working at a an event, a poker event called Triton Million London, where 56 people paid, get this, 1 million pound, actually 1 million 50,000, 1 million pound 50,000 to play this poker event. The 50,000 went to charity. Uh, the one million went in the prize pool, so it was a prize pool of fifty-six million. Uh, the winner actually won sixteen million, if I remember rightly. And Sosia was the only female player, so Sosia paid a million pounds to play in his poker tournament, which I find fascinating in itself. And uh, I interviewed her and talked to her because we was uh, turning the whole experience into a documentary, and I really liked her, and I really wanted to get her on the podcast. And the reason I wanted to get her on the podcast is I still believe, and I see it everywhere in my life, that we're living in a world that is led by a patriarchy. You only only have to look at what's happening in the USA right now. The the so-called wealthiest, strongest, most magnificent country in the world, and the two potential leaders are Donald Trump and an 80-year-old white man who... You know, it's not exactly inspiring us to great things, right? It's like, what's going on? And to me, that's a symptom of uh, like a greater problem. We definitely live in a patriarchal society. I myself uh, lived in one, a patriarchal household, and developed a fixed mindset around that. And my personality traits certainly um, developed similar types of habits, and I see a lot of times around me in my own personal life and in the last 10 years of working in the alcohol space, a lot of females who get stuck, they get stuck in relationships where they have uh, no or very little power, uh, where they um, accept that they are almost like the inferior species in the household and and that their dreams and their goals and their meaning and their purpose has to be put on hold while their husband does everything, right? The, the biggest one that bugs me is that when people on Strive, the women uh, say, I don't have any room to do assignments and to check in on Strive, et cetera, et cetera. Look, here's my schedule. And and you look at it and it's, it's all, I went to work today. I looked after the kids today. I went to bed today. And it's like, well, what's your husband doing? Well, he's, he's working. Yeah, well, you work as well, right? You work as well. So I really want to get more and more strong, powerful, inspirational female figures on it to hopefully ignite a few fires up a few people's asses so they can be like, wow, I could do that as well, right? You know, Socia, 
she was born in China. She lived in Mongolia for a short while. And then when she was nine, she moved to New Zealand. She got into the world of uh, investment banking and uh, private investing. And she made a lot, a lot of money. Uh, and then at one point, she just uh, gave it all up uh, to be a school teacher because she remembered that they were the greatest mentors in her life and she wanted to give back to other people. So it's a wonderful story. We can get a lot out of it. I hope you really enjoy it. Uh, so without further ado, I'll shut the hell up and leave you in the capable hands of Sosia Jiang. Thanks for listening. Today, my guest is Sosia Sosia, sorry, Jiang. How are you doing, Sosia? Hi, great. Thanks, Lee. You're doing really well. So where are you in the world? Uh, I'm here in New Zealand, Auckland, New Zealand. So we're um, currently experiencing um, an unusual event, probably once in a century event. The coronavirus has got us, it's particularly I'm in LA, so I'm locked in here in, in LA. So if anyone's listening to this and you hear my daughter screaming very loud, or you hear two Korean people downstairs fighting very loud, that's because we're all self-contained and I can't shut everybody up. It's impossible. So what's it like your end? Yeah, so we're in lockdown here as well. Um, but here in the Southern Hemisphere, we've had the luxury of having um, a bit more time to see how things have evolved, um, particularly in Europe and the U.S., um, and I think I'm quite fortunate to be in a country where, you know, we've had pretty strong leadership. So we're in full lockdown um, where, but, you know, we're allowed to sort of go outside for exercise and things like that. But our numbers are significantly lower than, than most other countries. And by contrast, um, some play, uh, you know, our neighbours, Australia. So I don't know, we're hoping that um, it can be contained um, and, uh, and, you know, the the whole flatten of the curve thing actually works here. It doesn't seem to be working so well, especially in the States at the moment. So I feel for you, Lee, and I feel for a lot of um, my American friends um, who I worry that I won't see for a while, especially if, um, I don't know, if your country does things like open up too early. But fingers crossed, we'll see how everything evolves, but hopefully it gets handled okay. Yeah, I don't, I don't, think, it, I don't think it's going to be anything that um, uh, resolves itself pretty quickly. One of the biggest challenges I have, of course, is, you know, I'm here with my mother-in-law, uh, my father-in-law, they're both in their late 70s, my wife, my daughter, she's three, um, and it's the tension in the house. It's like um, somebody coughs and uh, someone's someone's telling them off for coughing and, um, you know, there's all these precautions and everything and there's a real tension there within relationships and it's, it's good in one respect because we're all together, but there's a kind of a, a challenge that we all have to meet about, well, we have to kind of meet this situation with empathy. We all have to get on with each other. Um, what is it like where you, where you are? Are you on your own? Are you with family? What's, what's happening where you are? Yeah, I mean, it's a tough time for everybody. Um, I'm actually a little somewhat opposite to you in that um, both my parents are also um, 70 and so therefore higher risk. Um, my mother is particularly high risk because she's immune compromised and she has respiratory um, issues already, but they actually live separately and they live alone. And then uh, I'm the only, uh, my, my brother lives in Australia. So, um, yeah, so each day I'm kind of like trying to stay on top of their well-being. Um, online ordering here has been for food, um, has pretty much been impossible. Mm. Uh, they're actually not allowing here, they're actually not allowing any um, takeaway or delivery of 
prepared food. So it's very much reliant on, um, you know, supermarket um, products and some meal kits and things. And so, yeah, so trying to make sure that they're organized and they're not going out unnecessarily and, um, uh, and that their welfare is looked after is definitely stressful as well. Yeah. I have other relatives here too and other family, but um, some are actually in quarantine because, um, you know, because people have come back from overseas to mm. spend quarantine here, but you're, you're definitely in full quarantine if you've returned from overseas. So it's just trying to find a balance with, with everything actually. Yeah. Yeah. My, uh, my, my main worry, first of all, was, Oh, what am I going to do? I'm going to lo- lose the ability to earn. And if I lose the ability to earn, then I'm not going to be able to provide for my family. Like my father-in-law can't earn. You know, he's, he's a tailor. He's had a shut-up shop. So I now have to help the whole family out until the stimulus packages are uh, sorted out. Um, but for me personally, I don't know what it is or where it comes from, but things like this, they, it doesn't get on top of me so much. So I feel like, obviously, I feel anxiety. I think, wow, if I lose my job, I'm like... Triton is a big amount of money for me. It's like 75% of my income. If I, and they're not running any poker tournaments. If I can't get that money, then I'm, I'm in trouble. But it doesn't really go much further than that. I don't feel prompted to drink or take drugs or anything else to numb my situation. My body's just developed that ability to deal with it. Yet we have a lot of people on Strive, our community forum right now, who are really struggling. That have been, yeah. you know, been doing really well, not drinking, but are now drinking. That uh, are now catastrophizing. Where are you on that scale? And uh, when you tell us where you are on that scale, what did you do in order for you to become that way? Or if you have a lot of work to do, what 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 are your plans on working on it? Yeah, um, I mean, I can totally understand where if you have a job where you. Um, uh, can't work from home. Um, and actually for a lot of people working from home, it's highly stressful too, because, um, you know, you're at home with children and, um, and I know that my brother and sister-in-law are definitely struggling to, to get things done now that they're at home with, um, two young children. Um, and it's a stressful time for everyone. I think if you normally go out for a job and you can't continue that job, Um, And therefore, you know, you're at home, that extra time, you know, I've had downtime in my life where having that extra time on top of, you know, some isolation can be very dangerous to to mental health. Um, You know, it's hard to hard to have that where you don't have that external stimulus to kind of get yourself out of, um, you know, ruts and things. It can be um, it can definitely be a struggle Um, for me. I've been. I'm kind of fortunate at the moment where um, my, I guess the the overall busyness of my day uh, hasn't actually changed too much. I was, uh, so I'm involved in some different investment projects and avenues and things like that. Um, as far as uh, real estate projects are concerned, you know, those are obviously all frozen. So um, that's just on hold. Uh, but <laughs> I've been trying to navigate, navigate some of these stock market moves and just trying to manage portfolios. Um, you know, my, my approach is not really sort of the, the high frequency trading, um, anymore, but just trying to sort of stay on top of, um, trying to make guesstimates about what the next six to 12 months might look like and how, how I want to position, um, portfolios. And so that sort of analysis certainly, um, it takes quite a lot of reading. It takes quite a lot of time. And then on top of that, 
inevitably you get diverted by various random Twitter feeds. <laughs> so yeah, that's not particularly healthy, but you know, like chunks of time get, get used up in, in that avenue. And there's actually quite a lot of online poker on at the moment too. So yeah, so where I can schedule it in and have time, I'm taking that opportunity um, and being able to play from here in New Zealand too. So I'm quite fortunate in that, you know, there's quite a lot of things to do um, in the day and, you know, we're still, we're not under the sort of lockdown where we're not allowed to go outside at all. Um, And so, you know, I have quite an active dog that I need to walk um, and then, you know, later today, I have a humongous grocery list to um, shop for my parents. I mean, I'm cons- my my father's given me an order list. That everything is in kilos and liters, and we're talking about like fresh fruit and vegetable here. So right, right. I'm like, don't give yourself diarrhea. <laughs> you know? yeah, before yeah. this, before this, you know, different sorts of concerns um, other than just uh, a contraction of disease. So yeah. Well, I mean, you you know, you play poker and I, I was interviewing a mindset coach the other day and we were talking about how important it is in poker not to just also develop the technical aspects of your game, but also develop the mindset aspects of your game. And in particular, I was talking to Brian Rast yesterday, another poker player, about how important it is to keep your key relationships solid because if they're not, then that's going to affect your game, right? So on that tangent, going back to the, uh, the question that I asked you there, like, so you're keeping yourself busy, but what about your mental health? Like, are you, are you, have you done work to get yourself to the point where the world erupts in coronavirus and you kind of, kind of take it in your stride or you fall apart? Like, where are you on your mental health when these things go and what work have you done on that? I think, oh, that's a very broad question. As far as, I guess, an overall professional approach um, and a transition into playing more poker, particularly over the last 12 to 18 months, I think in terms of um, just taking things in a somewhat analytical approach, hang on, okay, let me, let me, um, let me swing this a different way. Okay. okay. I think actually getting more into poker, what it's the really valuable lessons that it's helped teach and reinforce um, in my life is, uh, first of all, to really just focus on, on the process rather than the exact results. It applies a lot to financial markets too, and it's just about trying to make the best decision you can at the time. And sometimes you're going to be wrong. A lot of the time you're going to be wrong and not to beat yourself up about, oh, well, what if I had done that? I wish I had done that. I'd like to think I'm reflective, but at the same time, I'm, you know, I really let myself go down the rabbit hole of, oh man, you know, like if I'd only done that, you know, life would have worked out. I try not to look, spend too much time looking back if I've made mistakes, it's just about trying to learn from those mistakes and trying not to repeat those mistakes like too much into the future. Mm. So I think not being results oriented um, is really important. And then before playing more poker, I had to say poker also gets you, really teaches you to learn to lose. And that's really hard at the start. Um, And, you know, and especially if, you run up a number of um, of losses. It's definitely hard psychologically to keep yourself motivated and think, but you kind of need to learn to take in your stride and find that balance between working out what 
you might have done wrong or what you can improve on rather than just writing it off to, oh, you know, like I'm just the unluckiest person in the world. And so therefore, you know, you're not thinking about what you might do to improve outcomes um, going on. But I think poker is kind of an extreme where I certainly wasn't really used to just overall losing very much. Um, You know, I've been pretty fortunate in a lot of things in life where, you know, I'm one of those people that are kind of used to being an achiever and used to feeling success. And so learning to take losses in your stride and dealing with them mentally has, I think, has definitely helped improve my attitude to life overall and, you know, temper my negative reactions to things that are beyond my control. So if we if we flip that then and, and apply it to alcohol addiction, it, the concept of learning to lose in poker, obviously it's related to emotions because if we if we then lose our emotional control, then it's likely that we're going to lose and we're going to get ourselves into this like uh, vicious cycle. So in, in alcohol addiction, for people listening, what society is saying there is if you are trying to go on this journey, you're going 1,000 days sober but and you go 30 days and then you drink, that's equivalent to a poker loss, right? So it's like, okay, how do I deal with this loss? Do I just go into a state of catastrophe uh, develop a case of the fuckets, as we say, and then just go off on one for like two, three weeks and go down a hole? Or do we pop up on Strive in our community and say, hey, yesterday I had a drink. Who wants to help me analyze kind of like what happened there? It's almost like introducing more rational and logical thinking and focusing on the process of getting sober. And and and, and have I got my process in? It's a little bit like, though it reminds me of a little bit, is um, Deliberate Practice by Anders Ericsson. Have you ever heard any of his work? Uh, I've heard about deliberate um, practice. Uh, I haven't read his work directly, but I've read other work that, um, you know, discusses um, how we learn and um, and this idea of, of deliberate practice for sure. And it applies to so many different parts in life. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, think, it, I think it could really apply uh, to trying to be someone who doesn't drink alcohol, you know, because mm. we, we had a, a lady yesterday from Australia. She was like, I can't cope right now because of what's happened with the coronavirus and I've had to, I've had to drink. But when you analyze it from a place of loving kindness, you know, and you say, come on, let's have a look at this. You can see that the deliberate practice is not there. You know, the work that it takes to be sober is, is not there. So, you know, I, I think that that, that is a, a really, really important thing. So thanks for raising that. I think that's really important. I think the other thing is, you know, we all fail. We all fail at different points. And it's important not to hate yourself for when you fail. Um, You need to acknowledge it. And it's also not pretending that you didn't fail and that you didn't do something wrong. But, you know, you kind of need to, yeah, I guess an analogous um, period of my life is um, I mentioned to you, Lee, that uh, I struggled with bulimia for quite a number of years, um, pretty much for all of my 20s and into my early 30s. And for most of that time, I was just, I sort of took the attitude as in, well, if I was strong enough, then I can just stop. You know, I, I, I understood that it was, a, it was self-harm, it was a harmful process, um, but I didn't really understand, um, I guess, the underlying causes um, of my condition. Uh, for me, it actually wasn't the pr- 
I mean, a lot of people, I, I read some literature, I didn't read an, an enormous amount. A lot of um, people talk about something like bulimia as in, uh, as people who, uh, you know, require control um, or a desire to, to have things ordered and controlled in their life. Um, and I was definitely, you know, someone a little bit, a little bit like that. And I sort of took the attitude of, well, you know, if I was strong enough, if I really wanted to, and if I just mentally tried hard enough, I can just will it to stop. And then I would always like stop for like a very short period of time. And then I would just relapse, you know, without, without any help. And then when I relapse, I would just feel awful. And then I would just be, I, I would just feel like a spectacular failure. I'm kind of like, well, why can't I just do this? You know, mm-hmm. if, if I'm, if I'm just strong enough and I'm strong in lots of other ways, why can't I just stop? You know, it's just a simple willpower. So, you know, I'm just, I'm just not trying hard enough. And that sort of attitude um, just, you know, just, it, it was just this repeating cycle and it just never got better. And it really wasn't until eventually, I guess I reached a point in my life where I just really, really where I was very much ready to, to just get rid of, I guess, these self-harm actions. Um, and for years, what I did was I was quite nomadic. Um, you know, I moved around a lot, um, uh, both geographically and then, you know, like uh, I had jobs that were varied, but I was fortunate in that my investment banking career was actually quite a varied job too. And I would use those changes you know where my role would change or I would move to a different place and I'd be like right you know great this is it you know fresh start a new start and then and then you know this is what I need I, I can get I can get away and it was a it was a false hope right because I never really understood the underlying cause of my condition and then finally finally when I moved back to New Zealand and I went into secondary teaching actually and <laughs> And so here for secondary teachers, because it's, that's actually an extremely stressful job, um, they provide you with a small number of free sessions um, mm. with um, qualified psychologists. Um, and that's how I started. Because actually when I was living in Asia, you know, I did, a, I would try to Google, I just didn't know how to get in touch with anyone. Mm. And then, you know, there was so much shame around it. It wasn't like, I just didn't feel like I could just randomly go to someone and say, hey, look, I really need help. You know, how do I find a psychologist? And I think especially in the in Asian culture, mental health is just not really viewed as, um, as a serious issue and it's not really discussed openly. So, yeah, so it just took me a long, long time to find some help. And then once I found that help and once I was able to talk to someone and once – she was able to help me understand that, um, you know, you, you go through all of your background and, and kind of, for me, it was just understanding the causes and why I was the way I was. And it went away. Yeah. For me, it kind of went away because understanding that just naturally meant that I, I guess I just understood myself better. Um, and, I didn't have very specific triggers, but that need that need kind of went away. I mean, for me, it was it was a it sounds really weird, but it was actually a self comfort mechanism that for for most you know I was an immigrant child where my parents were literally working all the time, so 
from a very, very young age, um, I had to live quite independently. I had to look after a younger sibling. So, mm. you know, I subsequently came to understand that from an early age, I kind of just had to cope and self-comfort myself. And so, therefore, in times of stress, I didn't really have the emotional relationships where I was reaching out to people to ask for help and seek solace and comfort and nurturance um, through those ways. And of course, you know, when I would fail at self-comfort, that was when, you know, I I would have, um, th- th- that's how I developed bulimia essentially. So I think understanding that need um, and then ultimately maturing in ways where, where I guess, you know, I just sort of manage, um, manage stress in my life now differently. And, you know, I'm kind of not on that wheel of trying to, trying to compete and achieve certain levels and rankings and name card titles and things like that. Um, but also, you know, through that process, dealing with failure and, and dealing with loss and not hating myself for, for that, um, you know, for me, that's kind of how how um, how that issue went away. It's really interesting because, um, and thanks for sharing all that. I, I, I really appreciate. It. I know it's not easy to talk about these things. And um, I've been reading this book, Grit, by Angela Duckworth. I don't know if you're aware of it, if you've ever read it, but she talks about um, so many high achievers in the world. It's not talent uh, that gets them to where it is. It's the grit. It's that um, ability to. Uh, create uh, well, or to find a passion within a subject, and then perseverance to remain with it. And it's it's interesting then that you said, you know, you don't need the titles, you don't you don't need this and that. I mean, her book is not about titles per se, but it is about people being laser like focused, blocking out everything else, sacrificing, and really going for it, and putting in up many, many, many hours of deliberate practice in order to excel at something. So there's a very fine line there, isn't there, between wanting to be a success and leaving your, your mark on the world and, and not actually driving yourself into a real mental health issue because, you know, you start to develop all these fixed mindset kind of low self-worth, inadequacy issues, right? It's a very fine line, Socia, isn't it? It is a fine line. And I think um, the reasons of why you're doing things are very important. Um, I'm not saying don't strive. Um, I think, you know, I'm the type of person where, and, you know, anything, and and this new pursuit of, of poker is the same. And actually, even when I was teaching, one of the reasons I stopped teaching was because I just found myself working longer hours than I was in investment banking, which was a shock to me. Um, but it was all, it was part of it was because I kind of couldn't stop as in like, I just, I really wanted my lessons to be, you know, to be really well structured and really good. Um, and then on top of that, you've got, you know, marking loads and, and, and all sorts of other school commitments and things like that. And, um, and I actually just got burnt out. Um, uh, and then I, I just needed to, to take a break. Um, and so I just find myself that, you know, I'm one of those people where it is, it is finding that balance, but the motivation behind why you're doing something is, um, mm. is pretty important too. Mm. Um, I really enjoyed my job in investment banking and I was very fortunate to work for a firm that I really liked. And I was, you know, well supported throughout. But when I decided to leave 
you know, I kind of asked myself what I wanted at that point. There's endless, you can never make enough money. You know, you can, yeah, sure. I was sort of on a path where, yeah, you can seek promote, but you don't want to seek those things for their sake. Because the other thing I've learned and the other thing, something like poker really quickly reinforces is that if you're just going for, you know, a nominal win, just something that you've set as a target because you think it's something that, that is viewed as good by outsiders, right? Let's say yeah. getting a promotion or getting a pay rise or things like that. It mm-hmm. does feel good. Of course it feels good because you've achieved something, but it doesn't last very long. So then you kind of need to strive for the next thing. And, you know, you're finding that that next level or next ladder. Yeah. And so it starts to feel empty very quickly and, you know, they've done lots of behavioral analysis where wins never feel as good as losing feels bad. <laughs> so, so I, you know, I kind of find that you, you do need some element. Yeah, we love competition and we all love to have that feeling of having a little win, but it is also important to step back and realize that, that you need to be doing things for the for the, for the right reasons. And, and I really, you know, I'm kind of a little bit in my ivory tower because, because I'm at a stage where, you know, I don't need to, a lot of people don't have that luxury. You know, I I now no longer need to work. That's just not forever. But at the same, at, at this point in time, I don't need to work for work's sake just to pay the bills. I have the luxury of sort of, of sort of saying, Oh, look, you know, you, you need to be, you, you, you want, but I think, I think even, even when I was, um, and I, and I kind of decided that, that I actually don't need that much money because we were, you know, we were not food stamp poor, but I came from very, very humble beginnings. And, and when I stopped working, I sort of thought, well, you know, it's, I can survive that, you know, I've been Mm. there. If things really get that bad again, it's, I know what it's like. It's nothing to be, to be scared about. And that just, you know, working to accumulate more bank balances just doesn't really mean anything. And, you know, I kind of need to figure out what other interests I want to pursue and how I want to spend my, spend my time. Um, but at the same time, I think even when you are just working, it's important to take time out for yourself. And, and I don't know whether it's just having some time or whether it's trying to pursue something that, that you do have a passion about. And, I guess just that little bit of um, nourishment for your soul, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. I think what, what speaks to me when you're talking there um, is intrinsic and extrinsic motivation. And, you know, a lot of people think about extrinsic motivation as being financial, right? If you do this, I will pay you this. But when it comes to Strive, and I've just sent an email out to our members today, actually, because Strive's gone a little bit quiet during the coronavirus. People aren't posting as much and, and doing the work. So I sent a little note out, you know, saying, like very often I say to people, you've got to make this journey to be someone who doesn't drink alcohol bigger than yourself, right? But I'm not pushing them towards extrinsic. I, I want them to make their intrinsic feeling and their intrinsic motivation much greater than I need to stop drinking for Lee Davis' sake. So, so what do I do? I create a podcast or I create a company called 1000 Days Sober and I help other people. And, and at the same time, I'm not necessarily too affected by the extrinsic motivation by people saying, wow, Lee, you saved my life, et cetera, et cetera. It's coming from within that I know I'm doing something that I love, that I'm very passionate about, and I'm really helping people. So so for me, like 
you know, I, I'm always trying to say to people uh, on Stripe, look, you need to somehow love this. <laughs> like, you need to turn the 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 work of being sober into something that you really want to do, that you really love doing. You know, um, yeah. and and I think you're somewhere you'll you'll find uh, you'll find your way through that, especially with the the right level of support and stuff. You know, and I think um, also being okay in that that motivation is not going to be consistent all the time and mm. that's okay. You know, we can't operate a hundred percent all the time. And so it's okay to allow yourself some downtime. Um, and it's okay to, you know, it's being conscious of that, um, but finding ways to regroup, um, and motivate yourself along as well. Yeah. And, and I just want to put some context around this for people listening. Cause you, you said, uh, I know I'm in my ivory tower. I'm financially free, so you know I'm, I'm in a I'm in a position where I can talk about these things from, from a different perspective. But I find actually, and I've been afflicted by this as well, sort of a toxic belief, you know, a limiting belief that when you look at people who are really successful, that they're somehow different than you are, that they're they're wired differently, or they they were they were. You know, they won the lottery of life or something. So for people listening to this, I don't want you to think like that, folks, right? We're all flesh and blood. We're all, you know, most of us, you know, we're lucky to be born with a brain and all our, our things functioning. Um, and it, and it's, it's not necessarily about uh, getting lucky. It's like it is passion. It is perseverance. It is grit. It is intellect, emotionally, and IQ. And you can develop and, and learn those things to a greater extent. So just please remember that, folks, right? And it's the same when it comes down to creating alcohol. You look at someone like me and you think, wow, he hasn't drunk alcohol for eight years, right? But you forget there was a time when I was drinking like nobody's business and I couldn't stop. And I had to kind of figure out what was going on for me. And what Saucia says, which is really important, for me, it was getting to the root cause. Why am I drinking? Why do I want to stop? And those two things, those two questions are really important. Yeah. Um, and I think that, Everyone has a, there's a lot of luck involved in life. I, I you know, mm. that that much is true. Unfortunately, life is not just about the person who works the hardest, grinds the hardest, will always have the outcome they quote unquote deserve. Um, unfortunately, that is just the way it is. Um, but I think, you know, overall, we all have a lot of lucky things in our lives and we also all experience um, a fair amount of bad luck. It's also about trying to position yourself in a way where you can make the most of your lucky break. Sometimes, well, not sometimes, a lot of those times that is not obvious when it comes along. Um, and it's about being willing to take risks and making the most of those opportunities when they come about but also putting yourself in a position um, to be able to do that. So, you know, I think in terms of for that, just having consistently working on your on your mental health um, and general attitude and approach to things um, certainly makes a difference. Um, you know, I left New Zealand for, for many, many years um, and then I came back. And, you know, lots of people live different lives, but then sometimes you do – me people who are kind of like, oh, well, you know, I never left. Um, I never left the neighborhood basically. Um, and just the fact that life could have been different. Well, 
we all make choices. You know, most of our lives are a result of our choices. So it is about also, yes, um, I've had a huge amount of good fortune, but I've also had to take a lot of risks and work really hard as well to try and, and get the best outcomes of, of those um, opportunities. Yeah. Let's, let's uh, analyze that a little bit. Cause um, you know, I, I'm good friends with Talal Shikuchi. We talk about this a lot and Talal's always going, ah, lucky, lucky. So I said, I'm like, what is the most, what is like the, the number one thing in your success is like luck. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I'm always thinking to myself, like I got divorced, right. You know, I talk about it a lot on the po- podcast. I, I was w- with, um, with my uh, first wife for 20 years. And then she turns around and says, she wants to leave you. Right. So in that moment, when you realize it's fallen apart and you've got no control, it is absolute tragedy, right? You think you're the unluckiest person in the world. And if I had more luck, then this wouldn't happen to me, right? But then how you deal with that situation in that moment really is the, it, it is important about where you go. So then I'm like, come on, you've got to pull your shit together. What, what is the fortune in the tragedy of your wife leaving you? Now, this is going to sound really heartless, but here's the fortune in your wife leaving you. You don't have responsibilities anymore for your wife, and you don't have responsibilities for your child because she's taking your child off you, and you're renting them like a blockbuster video, right? You don't have financial responsibilities for another two people. You don't, for me anyway, I didn't have the responsibilities of a house. I didn't have the responsibilities of a car. I didn't have responsibilities of stuff because I gave it all away. Now, you can look at it in that perspective and create the belief in your mindset that you can now go on to greater things and try different stuff, or you can create a belief that that it is really unlucky and devastating and catastrophic that you don't have those things anymore, and now you develop a limiting belief. So I'm always I'm a great believer like the support systems like we have at Strive and having really experienced and uh, uh, people around you that can help you try to get a different perspective on what's going on in your life because. Very often, you know, good luck can become a bad luck can become good luck, and good luck can become bad luck, and and we need to be prepared, don't we? And build ourselves up, like the deliberate practice outside of the deliberate practice of about how to be a, you know, like a I don't know, like a a, a human normal human being because normal human beings can are designed to handle this stuff, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, we all need to process loss and you know, things that we need to grieve. Um, But then at the same time, it is important to then look forward and think about, well, you know, what new opportunities are out there and, and how, how can I now live my life um, to the, to the best of my ability? Yeah, Mm. for sure. So you grew up in, uh, you were born in China, you lived in Mongolia for a bit, and then you moved to New Zealand and then you went and studied. What, What was it that you studied, by the way? Uh, you mean at university? Yeah, yeah. I actually have three undergraduate degrees. <laughs> so I'm I'm your classic kind of, you know, jack of all trades. I just, so yeah, so what happened was I took a gap year off and then I decided that I felt like I was behind my peers, right? I mean, it's so nonsensical when you're young, but that's how I felt. I was like, oh, I've lost a year. So then I, um, so I was doing a, um, a, uh, a combined, um, a double degree course. Um, and then I decided because I was behind, I was going to take extra papers and finish early. And then in my final year there, I was like, actually, what am I, why am I rushing through this? Um, you know, university is actually 
great. There's just so many interesting things to think about and people to talk to and things like that. Uh, and then I was really curious. I actually said what I did. So I studied commerce and, um, and Asian studies in mm. Australia. And then I had a lot of friends who were doing law. Um, now, I never really had a strong desire to be a lawyer, but the law was just a really interesting realm for me because it's basically about how society works and the rules we all determine for ourselves, you know, and it, you know, and it's this, um, it's this ties in with, you know, what we believe in um, for morals. And sometimes morals drive the law and sometimes law drives morals, et cetera. So then I sort of thought, well, actually, the likelihood is that if I go into the workforce full-time now, I'll just never come back and study, which is probably mostly true. So then I decided to, um, so I moved to Sydney at that point. And I joined a program where I could basically schedule all my classes together on two days so that I only need to go to university for those two days and do just two full days of classes and then basically work, um, the other days. Um, and so, uh, so yeah, so I did that. So no, I never, I never used law. I never used, but having said that, I just found that, um, so what I realized after is while I was working and, you know, everyone says this, a lot of people say, Oh, what you learn in university is like useless and the exact knowledge, so stuff you're memorizing for exams, that's all true, but so many of the skills, um, particularly in terms of written communication, oral communication, um, things like that, um, and, you know, you do, I don't know, you can organize little committees or business structures or whatever mm, it else. Um, yeah. It's a lot of those soft skills that then become very valuable and very important um, later on. Well, even even developing a skill of studying, which is something that I never did when I was younger, but I'm more apt to do it now. I mean, again, if it, like we have a training course that lasts for 2.7 years. Like we we help people to go sober for 1,000 days, which is 2.7 years, right? So if you don't, if you're not used to studying and you can't structure your life to like, right, every Thursday at six o'clock, I am going to do an hour of this work. You're going to find it really difficult, especially when you've got resistance saying to you, ah, don't, don't do Lee's work. I'm a drink instead. Lee doesn't know what he's on about. So I think, I think the skill of studying is really important as well. What I'm interested in is where, like my boy now, he's just started working for Deloitte on an apprenticeship, right? So he's loving it. He's brand new to him. He's going to get paid £1,300 next week. It's the most money it's ever at his bank account. Yeah. He's so excited about not having to nag his mom and dad for money and then say no, earn it somehow. He's really excited. And at some point, you was there. I don't know if that was with CLSA or with a different company, but you was there. Yeah. How did you go from my boy to being financially free? And, and did that happen before you decided to be a teacher? Yes, it did. So this is where, yes, a lot of, a lot of luck is involved. Um, I, so when I was, so while I was, while I was studying, I was um, working as an accountant um, for, so this is actually just working with sort of, you know, in, as an accountant rather than in, in banking in, in finance per se. Um, but it was for an Australian, a big Australian investment bank. Uh, and then when I, um, when I finished my law degree, I wanted to go into what they call front office investment banking, so client-facing roles. And I thought I wanted to do things like IPOs and mergers and acquisitions because they just sounded really sexy. 
Um, the reality is that they're just, especially when you're fresh graduates, um, they're actually very, very monotonous, but but very, very long hours, um, just grind work. And I was applying to um, big name, quite big name firms. Um, and so the Australian bank at the time actually took over an Asian business. I didn't actually have any desire to, to move to Asia, but they bought out an Asian franchise and then I was seconded to Hong Kong. And I thought, this is fantastic. You know, I'm getting put up um, and, you know, I'm getting a stipend and all of this stuff. And then when I actually started living in Hong Kong, I realized that it was actually a lot of fun and it was also a real financial center. But I was applying to really big name places um, and was not getting it. Um, and I wasn't, I wasn't making the cut, you know, because they were looking at my CV going, you've been dilly-dallying around and doing like these random things. Yeah, and so um, so a friend of mine at the time spotted um, an ad for um, this smaller boutique firm called CLSA. So they were actually headquartered in Hong Kong, but you know they were the culture was um, the original founders was a Canadian and Australian, so the culture was very relaxed um, and you know more of what I was used to for for like a you know a, a small Australian background, and then. Because because it was um smart, much smaller and less structured. I mean, I had no idea at the time, but because they weren't as regimented, it just meant that after I joined, I was quite fortunate in that I had I basically had a mentor who um so a pretty senior person in the company, but who, who wasn't actually my direct boss per se, but he was someone who kind of um he actually encouraged me into the role I ended up. Um, doing which was a client service role but at the time I sort of thought no you know my skills are in analysis and and doing these you know like banking related stuff and then when I actually tried those things I realized that they were actually quite bored well kind of boring and then he was like no 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 you know like try this more client facing role and I tried it and like really enjoyed it because because you know it was much more interactive um, and then things change a lot more on a day-to-day day-to-day basis right um yeah and so it also meant that um I had someone who was kind of rooting for me but also but also guiding me in ways that I guess I was too young to kind of recognize for myself but then also helped um help promote me I guess much faster than I would have if I had joined a, a much bigger bank I think the moral behind that is um, is to you know hopefully find the right. Pe- I mean, mine kind of came to me, but really take every learning opportunity um, that workplaces can give you. We all need to put up with some of the you know with the grind, but look forward to the better parts. Make the most of um, colleagues. You're not going to get a lot. I mean, unfortunately, there's just politics everywhere. But, you know, you do need to learn to work with people you don't like um, and manage those relationships. Um, That's pretty important as well. Uh, Yeah, and then try to put yourself into positions where, you know, you can present yourself and say, hey, look, you know, when that next opportunity comes up, um, maybe think about giving me a go. And, yeah, it is important to speak up. So, yes, I did have something 
someone batting for me. But then I also realized that I needed to speak up and ask for things. You know, I couldn't just wait to be patted on my head. And then, you know, um, because things were just either not going to happen because other people are making more noises um, or it's just going to take much, much longer. So, yeah, so finding and creating those opportunities. Um, and then the other thing is <laughs> invest early. Yeah, I, th- I think that's the other thing. You know, like try to make yourself financially literate um, and invest early. And, you know, that's the thing. When you're really young and you've got a paycheck coming in, you're going to suffer some losses, but you can ride through those. Um, but it is really important to invest early. Yeah, when you say when you say that uh, you got you got lucky and, you know, you know, some people seek mentors, but the mentor come to you. You know, again, like, you know, I'm thinking to myself, mentors don't invest their time and effort into somebody unless they're getting some value out of it. So there must have been something about you, either the way you presented yourself or the way that you showed interest in the work or the job, whatever it was, like ability, whatever it was, that this person was like, okay, I'm going to spend some time nurturing this person. So so I, I think in general, it's a little bit like we always talk at Strive about the importance of raw authenticity. Uh, but we need to balance that by playing the game as well in certain areas of our life. There are certain times, you know, we're teaching people to take off their masks and drop their armor. But in a business setting, I think there is, uh, it makes logical sense for you to reach your goals, for you to some, sometimes wear a mask and sometimes uh, put on some armor, but just but be aware of it. I think the awareness is r- really important, you know? Um, so so then you get financially free so you know you should be like just quitting and putting your feet up and then just uh you know just having having a ball but in 2012 something happens and you decide to go and take a job in secondary school which lasted what like three years what what happened what was the epiphany uh and and why did you decide to do that yeah, so during the period that I was living in China, uh, both my parents were actually, they had actually been living in China for quite a number of years at that point. Um, my mother had been diagnosed with lung cancer, and so she was um, so she was getting treatment um, both in Shanghai, and then when that didn't really seem to be helping that much, um, there were... Uh, China opened up direct flights to Taiwan and then she was, she ended up flying to Taiwan on a weekly basis. Oh, sorry, not a weekly, on a monthly basis um, to get treatment. But it got to the stage where she was more reaching, I guess, a palliative care, care stage. And she really wanted to move back to New Zealand and spend some time there. But my father really didn't want to leave China. I had, uh, so yeah, so in China, I was given responsibility to um, to head up our operations there, um, which was again a great experience and a great opportunity. Uh, and then, you know, me me being ethnically Chinese, um, it was definitely something that I really wanted to. Um, it was a big career goal of mine to work in China and then see what I could make of it. However, I did not particularly enjoy um, some elements of working in China. Um, we had to be in a joint venture. And so we had a, a Chinese firm as our partner. Um, we had to deal a lot with um, regulators because financial markets were only just, just starting to open up there. And it was a style of working that I was just really not used to. Um, I'm a pretty direct person and, you know, 
Um, so there was there was a real culture clash in terms of um, working styles, in terms of working with the with the partner, and then generally trying to get things done. It was just it was very very frustrating. Um, and uh, yeah, and some things were changing um, ultimately at the firm too. And then and then I just remember I was. I, I actually can't even remember why I was in Korea, but I was on a, I just finished a business trip um, in Korea. I think it was Korea. And then I was, anyway, I was on a late flight home. I was pretty exhausted. And then I kind of had, I don't really have these things, but I, I guess I sort of had a bit of an epiphany. I'm not sure if it was a hallucination. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I, I was sort of um, at a point where I was thinking about, how I got to where I was in life, um, where I then wanted to go. And for some random reason, I just started thinking back to, you know, people that were of great importance um, and were really formative. Um, And just a couple of high school teachers really came to mind that they were, you know, really important people and ultimately shaping my path. Um, and they wouldn't even know it because, you know, I was this precocious teenager and sure, I got them some, I don't know, some random $5 gift as a parting thing. But I had no idea, you know, how much they would ultimately impact, um, you know, the way I viewed the world and simple things like an attitude toward um, a cure, an intellectual curiosity toward learning. Um, because so many kids have negative learning experiences at school and then they just think, well, you know, I'm just dumb. And then so they cut themselves off from, well, it's not their fault because, you know, some people actually try and tell them that. And so they cut themselves off to certain parts of life and certain opportunities because they just think they don't even try. They just think they can't do it. Hmm. And so I thought, well, this is something I can kind of do for mum because if I, and, and I was at a stage where I sort of was ready to maybe make a change and try something out and, and I kind of sort of believe that, well, I can make this big drastic change and if things are really bad, I have a skill set where, you know, I can just come back and knock on the door and say, please take me back and, yeah. you know, there'd be a reasonable, you know, a reasonable chance that, a pretty good chance that that could happen. Um, yeah, so so at first, well, at first I was on the plane, it was just a random thought, but it actually just didn't go away. Um, and then I thought, well, you know, I have an opportunity to actually try and effect some change as well out of this. Um, yeah. And so that idea kind of stayed and kind of nagged. And at first people just thought I'd kind of gone mad. Um, (laughs) but I actually gave my notice six months ahead of time so that there would be plenty of time to plan. But, but funnily enough, like my, my CEO and my, yeah, the other thing, I think they just thought that I would change my mind and that I wouldn't go through with it actually. Um, but yeah, but that's what I did. So I ended up in teaching for, um, well, basically for four years, actually, um, four school years. And, um, yeah, and like I said, it was, um, the, the classroom part was, um, I really enjoyed, but that's actually only about 50% of the job. Um, and then for me, I actually sort of got burnt out after sort of, quite a long period of, um, of pretty intense work lifestyle, both, mm. um, both in Asia, uh, and in New Zealand too. So I have, pl- I mean, education is an issue that I'm really passionate about. Um, and when I first stopped teaching, I had plans to actually do some research and uh, do a master's in the, in the realm of education. Um, and then, uh, and then maybe later on get into, 
some policy-related work or working with some, you know, adult learning organizations and things like that. So that's still on the cards. And mm. I kind of feel like, you know, I don't know, these days it's just we all have so many opportunities. And then um, it was really motivating for me uh, last year to kind of hear and learn about all these people that started incredible careers in their 40s um, and some into their late 40s, sometimes even early 50s. And so I kind of feel like, you know, we just we just all have all of our lives. Like even these days, you know, even 60 is not quote-unquote old that, you know, for, for, for what we want to do and if we can create opportunities, we still have, you know, so many – we as human resources – can still offer so much. Yeah, I think it, for me, listening to you, it, it reminded me of um, when I left my 20-year career on the railway to try to be a professional poker player. It's about taking that risk, and boy, what a, a lot of powerful resistance that was to like not to, to stay where I was in, in the comfort of my path of least resistance. Um, but it has to be a calculated risk as well. So, you know, like you said, you were pretty confident that if the teaching gig didn't go well, in, in order for find things to do because money wasn't an issue, you could go back, you could find a job. I was the same. I I I spoke to um, uh, I was a freight logistics uh, manager, so I, I spoke to Cora Steelworks Tata. Uh, it is now, and my my uh, customer and said, you know, I'm going to try this. If it if it bails out, will you give me a job? And they were like, yeah, sure. So so I was kind of like, okay, I'm going to take early retirement. I'm going to have a year's pay. I'm going to give this a go. And if I know if it screws up. So it wasn't like reckless risk. It was, it was yes. still terrifying risk, but there was, there was some kind of fallback position, you know? Yes. Yeah. And it's, I guess it's also being mentally ready to step back too. I mean, that mm. can sometimes be really hard. You try something, it doesn't work out. And if, feels like such a failure to take a step back, you know, but it's just, but I think it's important not necessarily to view it that way. Um, you know, we all need to regroup and reconstruct ourselves. And then, and then, you know, if you are able to work within your comfort zone for a period of time, you can then get yourself ready to take on the next challenge. And what I like about what you did as well is uh, very often in life, when we, when we think about our goals and achievements, there's this kind of like hot, it's like a hierarchical status is associated with monetary value. So like I would love to be, and this is just absurd, but I'd love to be a singer or I'd love to be an actor. I'd love to be an actress or I'd love to be an investment banker rather than an investment banker or, and a singer saying, I'd like to be a school teacher. I'd like to go on podcasts and just talk about drinking alcohol. Um, what, what, you, what your decision did is it shows people listening to this, there is no structure. You can choose what you want to do and go and do it. You know, if that is what you're very passionate to do, if you're talking to Brian Rash yesterday, he wants to be a DJ. All right, so buy equipment and learn to be a DJ. But at the same time, yeah, I know. At the same time you're learning to be a DJ, find a way to earn some money while you can do your, your little side gig, right? But don't give up on it. Don't tell yourself that you can't do it because you have a husband. And do you know one of the things that bugs me, Sosia, I'm going to get I'm going to get on my soapbox before I let you go, is um, the women on Strive who will – it will say things like, I don't have time to do X, Y, Z, or they'll show, um, you know, uh, the weekly structure about how they're running their life. And then I'm like, well, carve out a time there where you've got kids, give it to your husband and then do your thing. You know, it's like, it's, it's, it's something about this 
matriarchal, patriarchal thing that I see on Strive, which is like, no, my role and responsibilities is that I have to take on this part of, 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 our, of our life and my husband has to do this. But no, widen the box, widen the thinking, get together with your partner and say, right, how can we both achieve our dreams, right? It's important not to let, whether it's jobs or tasks, let them define you. You know, mm. you are not just X, Y, Z. You are not just a housewife or just an accountant or whatever it may be. Um, and it is doubly hard for women. Um, so, you know, we do get established in in the way we view ourselves um, and what we view as our role should be. And the thing is that those people around us view that way, view us that way too. Mm. And, um, and, you know, you do need a supportive partner to work with you. Um, but at the same time, it's important to have those conversations to start the ball rolling and, you know, things are not going to be perfect overnight. Um, it's going to be an ongoing process, but that's the thing you kind of need to keep trying to allow yourself to have a little bit of that time that you deserve. Um, yes. Yeah. We have, we have a striver called uh, Stella. One of our, she just spent, she just celebrated a two year anniversary with us. And she's like, husband, do you want to go to New Zealand? She lives in the UK. Do you want to go to New Zealand? Uh, no. Okay. See you later. I'm going to New Zealand. And I love that. It's like, I'm not leaving you. The relationship isn't ending, but I am going to go and do my thing. And when you want to grab hold of my coattails, give me a shout and, and we'll figure it out. Uh, Sasia, thank you very much for your time. I've really appreciated you uh, on the podcast. I know your time is really precious. So thank you for joining Thanks us Thanks for today. having me. Yeah, it's been lovely chatting. Thank you for listening to the Alcohol Dealers Young Podcast. And before you bugger off and go listen to someone more important than me, like Tim Ferriss or Joe Rogan, I've got a few things to tell you about. First and foremost, if you really like the show, please go to your podcast platform, rate and review it. Give it a five-star review. Tell everyone how great I am. That'll be really, really appreciative um secondly if you want to learn more about the work that we're doing here at 1000daysober.com then head to that website 1000daysober.com you can learn how to get involved in this amazing project to be someone who doesn't drink alcohol for 1000 days and beyond okay um get over there get involved we will provide you with a tremendous support system and world-class workshop experience called the strive sobriety system okay it's uh, catered to hit you at all stages of this sobriety journey so if you're like contemplating whether or not you it's right for you to stop drinking don't worry we've got your back we'll hit you on that if you've been stop drinking for now seven days eight days and you want you want to make an even bigger inroads we've got you if you've actually stopped drinking for three four years but you still want to be amongst a community of people who don't drink alcohol and you want to enrich your life and live a fulfilled life we've got your back as well so get over to www.1000daysober.com okay and join our strive support system it is amazing you will love it if you want to follow us on social you can find us at 1000daysober.com on instagram and 1000daysober.com at youtube where you can watch all of these podcasts in the flesh rather than just listening to them Uh, without further ado i'm going to shut the hell up and leave you in the capable hands of yourself thanks for listening